President Biden reverses a Trump-era decision to move the Space Force headquarters from Colorado to Alabama, angering Republicans. It's Tuesday, August 1st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the campaign to get benefits to veterans hurt by toxic chemical exposures. Also, the lawsuit in Oklahoma trying to block the first religious charter school from opening. Lawmakers there approved the school in June. Plus, the pushback against Republican efforts to restrict or ban drag performances. And this hour, we revisit the Borscht Belt, an area of New York State where Jewish families were welcomed each summer when they weren't allowed elsewhere. In sports, Red Sox lose and the U.S. advances in the Women's World Cup. Mostly sunny in the 70s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A federal jury opens deliberation today on the sentence for the man who shot and killed 11 Jewish worshipers at a Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018. From member station WESA, Julia Zenkovich reports jurors could decide he should receive the death penalty. In their closing arguments Monday, prosecutors argued that Bowers has shown no remorse for committing the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history. They also contend that the aggravating factors, including Bowers' anti-Semitic and white supremacist beliefs, outweigh the mitigating factors, such as any mental health issues he may have. Defense lawyers reminded jurors that they must weigh mitigating and aggravating factors and come to an individual moral judgment. They say Bowers' tumultuous childhood and mental illnesses should persuade the jury to sentence him to life in prison. For NPR News, I'm Julia Zankovich in Pittsburgh. Police in Memphis, Tennessee, shot and critically wounded a man who had opened fire at the building of a Jewish school yesterday. He had tried and failed to get inside. No one in the Memphis Jewish school was hurt. Federal health officials want to find out more about the condition known as long COVID. NPR's Will Stone reports they've launched a handful of new studies to test different potential treatments. The National Institutes of Health is opening enrollment in four clinical trials. One is exploring the theory that the virus somehow persists in the body after the infection. Patients will be given the antiviral Paxlovid to see if that improves their symptoms. Another focuses on brain fog and cognitive dysfunction, leveraging web-based brain training programs and a popular brain stimulation method. Other trials will look at drugs that could improve sleep problems, as well as symptoms associated with irregular heartbeat, dizziness, and fatigue. While there are specialized clinics for treating long COVID, there are still huge gaps in our understanding of its underlying causes and how to treat it. Will Stone, NPR News. Searing heat is sticking around the central U.S. today. Heat indexes will hover around 110 degrees from Kansas and Missouri down to the Gulf Coast of Alabama and Louisiana. Forecasters say this heat will push to the east. In China, at least 11 people have died and dozens more are missing amid flooding in the western suburbs of Beijing. NPR's Ao Wen-Sao has more. The intense rain has prompted Beijing to close tourist attractions like the Forbidden City. But the most affected areas are the city's outer districts. Riverbeds that usually stay dry for much of the year were overwhelmed by downpours. Around 120,000 people in vulnerable communities have been evacuated to school gyms, according to state media. The city's government announced on Tuesday that two rescue workers were among those killed. This level of rainfall is highly unusual for Beijing, a city that enjoys a dry climate. However, more and more northern regions in China have reported floods in recent years. Ao Wen Tao, NPR News, Beijing. This is NPR. 
A near-total abortion ban is set to take effect today in Indiana. From member station WFIU, Benta Boutier reports the abortion rights advocates say they expect the law's language to cause confusion. The law allows for certain exemptions, such as for rape and incest or if a pregnant person's serious health or life are at risk. But State Senator Shelley Yoder says those conditions aren't defined in the law. She addressed one of several groups that gathered on the eve of the ban going into effect. It is completely unclear. We do not know. The ACLU of Indiana is seeking more clarity on the medical exemptions through a rehearing petition filed Monday, which could pause the ban from going into effect. For NPR News, I'm Benta Boutier in Bloomington, Indiana. In Idaho, a federal judge has temporarily blocked that state from punishing medical providers who refer patients out of state for abortions. The judge says the action would be chilling to First Amendment free speech rights. Healthcare providers are suing the state of Alabama for the same reason. They want to stop Alabama from prosecuting them for referring people out of state for abortions. NASA says the Jet Propulsion Laboratory is listening carefully for the deep space probe Voyager 2. A series of commands sent to the spacecraft last week tilted its antenna away from Earth, so communication has been cut. Voyager 2 is more than 12 billion miles from Earth. Scientists say if they cannot pick up the probe's signals right away, its next automatic reset is in mid-October. They should be able to connect by then. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The state budget is now on Governor Healy's desk. It's for the fiscal year that began one month ago. Healy could pass the proposal as it is or choose to veto all or some parts of it. Part of the budget includes extending a pandemic-era program that paused evictions. That measure makes it illegal for landlords to evict tenants if they're seeking financial aid to pay rent. The original program expired earlier this year. Leaders in the Massachusetts Senate plan to come up with their own gun safety bill in the fall. Senate President Karen Spilka tells the Boston Herald she wants the state to lead the nation in gun safety legislation. The move in the Senate comes after House lawmakers backed down from a plan to advance its own gun reform bill before the August break. They also say they plan to tackle the issue again in the fall. Massachusetts General Hospital is opening a new center for kidney transplants. Doctors say the $25 million center could reshape the future of organ transplant treatment. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel explains how. Most organ recipients take immunosuppressant drugs for the rest of their lives, so their bodies won't reject the donor organ. But those drugs open them up to other problems, like infections. In at least 40 years, we haven't made a significant change in the way we treat our patients. Joran Madsen directs MGH's transplant center. He says now a kidney transplant would happen with a bone marrow transplant to help the body accept the organ and wean the patient off immunosuppressants. The holy grail of transplantation is the ultimate. But the new procedure is still experimental and costly. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. This past July will go down in the history books. The National Weather Service reports we picked up nearly 10 and a half inches of rain. That makes it the rainiest July of the century. Andy Nash is a meteorologist with the Weather Service. He says there's no way to tell what next July may be like. There's just that natural variability. So, you know, even if climate change is making the trend warmer, 
and wetter, that doesn't mean every summer is going to be warmer and wetter. Uh, climate changes, you look at that over a much longer time period, over a decade or two. Some western parts of the state received over 20 inches of rain last month. It's 7.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. The Red Sox have now lost three in a row. They fell to the Mariners 6-2 to two last night in Seattle. The teams will play again tonight. Boston went 15-8 and eight in July, but remains two and a half games out of a wildcard spot. Mostly sunny today with a high in the mid-70s, mostly clear overnight. It'll drop down to the 50s, sunny again tomorrow and back to the 70s. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. Today, the United States takes up the presidency of the United Nations Security Council. The position rotates monthly among members. Human rights and global food security top the U.S. agenda, but action may be stimmied by other permanent council members with veto power, specifically Russia and China. To discuss this, we're joined now by Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Good morning, Ambassador. Thanks for being on the program. Good morning. Delighted to be with you. So a top U.S. priority is global food security. Russia pulling out of the Black Sea grain deal has threatened to push millions more into hunger without Ukrainian grain exports. What can the Security Council effectively do to change this? Look, what we are doing during our month uh, as president of the Security Council is bringing food security to the top of the agenda. Mm -hmm. And we actually made the decision to do this before Russia pulled out of the grain deal. In fact, this is the third time that I have brought food insecurity in front of the council. Uh, For us, food security is is national security and 700 million people go to bed hungry every night. Uh, No one should have to go to bed hungry. It really is a moral issue that we believe the Security Council has to pay attention to. It's about international peace and security. How How does the Security Council address this? One, we address it by bringing two the uh, to the table experts uh, who can talk about these issues. So we will be having NGOs uh, brief us on what they are seeing in the field. We will Mm -hmm. be having uh, the UN brief us about what they're seeing in the field. And we will raise the and amplify the importance of this issue in the council. Our plan is to uh, issue a, a, a statement Uh, From our side, we've gotten about uh, 60 countries to sign on to uh, to our statement supporting uh, the efforts to uh, focus our uh, to really focus our attention on this issue and work to end famine. Uh, There are regions around the world uh, where we're still seeing famine-like conditions in the Horn of Africa, Mm -hmm. for example. And this is not something that the U.S. can address alone. So this is our efforts to bring others into into trying to find a solution. Is there common ground with Russia on issues related to famine? 
there is not common ground on with Russia. Russia, what Russia is doing with uh, its unprovoked war on Ukraine is actually exacerbating the situation. If we look at the number of countries that have been uh, blocked from getting needed food assistance from the Black Sea Grain Initiative, certainly uh, that shows that Russia is not committed to this. Russia pulled out. Uh, of that deal at a time when they knew uh, the needs were so great. They also vetoed a resolution that would have provided needed assistance uh, to Syrians cross-border. So no, we're not in sync with Russia on this issue. So what can actually be done then if Russia has veto power, there is no common ground? Well, we can get other countries to join us in pushing Russia, in encouraging Russia, urging Russia to do the right thing. Uh, the Secretary General is currently still in negotiations with the Russians, with the support of the government of Turkey to rejoin the uh, the Black Sea Grain Initiative. We're also working with the UN to find a path forward to getting food assistance across the border to Syria. Before I let you go, I do want to ask about the situation in on the Tunisia-Libya border. Human rights also top agenda for the U.S. There are mass expulsions, people dying of thirst and hunger in the desert, mass expulsions by the Tunisian government. How are global powers approaching what appears to be a seriously inhumane situation? Uh, we're working with the UNHCR, with the International Organization for Migration, to find a path to provide needed assistance to these individuals to provide protection. Uh, the UNHCR has called for Tunisia and other governments to honor their commitments to provide protection to asylum seekers, and we're engaging with those governments as well. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Layla. The ACLU and some parents in Oklahoma have filed a lawsuit to stop a religious charter school from opening in that state. The all-virtual Roman Catholic school would be funded by Oklahoma taxpayers. A state board approved the plan. Opponents say government funding for a religious school is clearly unconstitutional, and the case could go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Reporter Beth Wallace with State Impact Oklahoma has been following this story. Uh, Beth, how did the state board justify approving public funding for a religious school? So St. Isidore is the patron saint of the internet, um, and the St. Isidore of Seville statewide Catholic virtual charter school would be a K-12 all-virtual school. It was approved by Oklahoma's statewide virtual charter school board in a split 3-2 to two vote, and actually our state's attorney general has called the legitimacy of that vote into question due to the timing of the vote and whether a newly appointed board member had officially started his term. So still some validity of the vote questions standing there. Um, but the reasons that those board members give who voted yes, they say it was a vote for religious liberty. Um, school choice is also a really hot topic in Oklahoma, as with a lot of the rest of the country. Um, and by school choice, I mean subsidizing more private education with public dollars. This wave of school choice policy has really hit Oklahoma, and St. Isidore is certainly a part of that. Now, the ACLU uh, and others say that this violates the separation of church and state. Uh, what's the main argument there? So the plaintiff's uh, lawyers argue that students whose identities might conflict with the teachings of the Catholic Church could potentially be discriminated against. Dan Mack is the director of the ACLU program on freedom of religion and belief. He says the schools would be in violation of numerous state laws. Among other things, these basic rules, which 
apply to anyone seeking to start a charter school, bar these schools from discriminating and prevent them from imposing religious views on students. Yet the state board approved the application by a three to two vote on June 5th against the legal advice even of the state's Republican attorney general who has unequivocally said that the approval of this school is unlawful. You know, and in its application, St. Isidore even said that it would be evangelizing to students. Um, I'd also say the lawyers definitely point out they're worried that students with certain disabilities won't be receiving an adequate level of support that they need, especially because St. Isidore will have no in-person component to help those students who might need that. Other virtual schools in Oklahoma have that hybrid model for those students. So what are the supporters of the charter school saying about the lawsuits? Well, they're definitely hoping that it'll eventually end up at the Supreme Court and that the conservative majority will be on their side. Our state superintendent of public instruction, Ryan Walters, he's been an ardent supporter of school choice. He's also a non-voting member of that charter school board. He says St. Isidore's establishment is a move to, quote, end atheism as the state-sponsored religion. He sees the suit as an attack against religious liberty. The school is supposed to open next fall, though obviously there are a lot of legal challenges and that could throw the timeline out the window. All right, Beth Wallace is a reporter with Oklahoma State Impact. Beth, thanks for your reporting. Thanks so much. Nearly 4 million people across the country have recently lost their Medicaid coverage. The reason? Pandemic protections expired in April. Now every state is going through their roles, confirming some people can stay and others are getting cut off. NPR Selena Simmons-Duffin has the latest on how this process is going. Just a few months ago, in March, the number of people with Medicaid was an astonishing 93 million. That's about one in four people in the country on Medicaid, the public health insurance program for people with low incomes. That's more than ever before. It's not surprising when you think about it. For three years, states let new people enroll without kicking anyone off, so the rolls grew and grew. Now it's time for what's being called the Great Unwinding, a return to the usual process of checking everyone's eligibility every year. Some people are losing coverage because they don't qualify anymore. Maybe they make too much money now. But 74% of people on average are losing coverage for paperwork reasons, says Jennifer Tolbert, Director of State Health Reform at KFF. That means... They didn't get the renewal notice in time, they didn't understand what they needed to do, or they submitted the documents, but the state uh, was unable to process those documents before their coverage was ended. She does say some people who were wrongly cut off will quickly re-enroll, although even losing coverage briefly can be really disruptive and stressful if you're sick or can't get your medicine. Medicaid is managed by each state, so there is a lot of variation in how states are doing this. In Texas, in this first month of unwinding data that they reported, they actually reported disenrolling 82%. That's compared to 8% in Wyoming. Tolbert says they don't have all the information to understand exactly what's behind this variation state to state. In Arkansas, documents weren't getting returned from the Marshallese community in the state, says Kisa Smith. She used to work for the state's Department of Human Services. Now she's an advocate at a nonprofit, and she spoke last week with the Center for Health Journalism at USC. The documents that DHS had had translated into Marshallese did not actually make sense. Like the one thing that did translate was that these individuals had done something drastically wrong. 
Experts and advocates say, if you've lost Medicaid, you do have options. If it was a paperwork glitch, you can re-enroll. If you're no longer eligible, you may qualify for a plan at healthcare.gov that's subsidized, so the monthly cost is low. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, why Italy's defense minister says his country's decision to join China's Belt and Road Global Infrastructure Program was, quote, wicked and atrocious. It's 720. Many Democrats think that delivering tangible economic benefits to working class and lower income voters will help them win more elections. But is that true? People are capable of voting to increase the minimum wage and supporting an authoritarian candidate at the same time. Understanding that contradiction and its impact on American democracy. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Sunny and breezy today with a high of 76, right now at 65 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at Asylum.News. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. It's easy to dream about space because all you got to do is go outside and look up to see some of what's out there. But the deep ocean, that's not so easy because even if you're in the ocean, you can't just look down and see what's in the deep waters. Typically, it's defined as the waters below 600 feet. So as you can imagine, since it goes all the way down to almost 36,000 feet in places, The deep ocean is the vast, vast, vast majority of the ocean. Susan Casey has been down there. She's a diver and author of the new book, The Underworld, Journeys to the Depths of the Ocean. Casey writes that while most people prefer to go to Paris, Bora Bora, or the Serengeti, she's always wanted to go to the ocean's abyss. If you think of the Earth as a biosphere, but 2% of that is everything we see, 98% is ocean, and 95% of that is deep ocean. And I often think of it as like living in some mansion filled with rooms full of amazing animals and artworks and treasures. And we've just looked in one or two rooms. I really wanted to look in all of the rooms. What's the deepest you've been? I, I mean, I read that you went 16,000 feet deep, right? 
it was somewhere between 16 and 17, probably closer to 17,000 oh, feet deep. I'm so yes. sorry, 17,000. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, uh, there's a lot more below that, but I was very happy to get to that depth because what I was really hoping when I set out to do this project, it was my greatest hope and dream that I would be able to take readers with me to a really profound depth in the ocean, and that's the literal abyss. And it was a magnificent experience. Just real honor to be able to share that with everybody. So, okay, aside from what we typically think we know about what's there, um, what's there? <laughs> well, that is a question that's always haunted me. Ever since I started writing about the ocean, I began to notice that there's this parallel universe that pops to the surface every so often, but then it'll disappear again. And we can't really follow it. And there is so much going on down there. A lot of really extraordinary life, a lot of lost history that we are rediscovering. So it's a party down there. Well, let me ask you this then. Why don't we seem to care as much about that party as we do about this party above our head, space? I thought about that a lot, and I still do think about that a lot. And I think it's just out of sight, out of mind. I mean, we can look up in the sky, we can look at the stars through telescopes, but the journey inward is a journey into darkness. It's a journey into a sort of an inner space that makes us less comfortable. It's not a journey of conquest, it's really one of submission. In the course of human history, all the shipwrecks, all the stuff that's been thrown in the ocean, I'm wondering just how much man-made stuff is, is out there. UNESCO has estimated that there are some 3 million undiscovered shipwrecks. Now, not all of those are in the deep ocean, but what's interesting is that when there is a shipwreck in the deep ocean, it's often really well-preserved. But I don't know if you had a chance to read the book, but there is a chapter about marine archaeology in there, and it focuses on this one shipwreck that's really fascinating, that they're going to do a full excavation on it 2,000 feet down. It's called the San Jose, and it's a really unusual shipwreck because they know that it's been preserved perfectly in the seafloor sediment, and it also is filled to the gills with stuff. Oh, um, wow. And its value is estimated at somewhere between $17 billion to $35 billion just in the stuff that's on it, but it's got this absolutely priceless historic value because they know exactly what it was doing, where it went down. And the problem is, is that the excavation is going to cost upwards of $50 million. And it, there becomes this sort of battle of, okay, who's going to pay for this and who will own it? But that's the kind of thing that's down there. You know, that makes me think of the Titan submersible. Um, how can deep sea exploration coexist with deep sea tourism? Well, anytime you go into the deep ocean, you're not really a tourist. I mean, because it's a fairly extreme experience. And the thing about the Titan that is so distressing is that it really is an accident, a tragedy that didn't have to happen. Because we're talking about forces that we know what they are, and we know how to engineer to withstand them. There's just a tried and true way of getting down there that they disregarded. And unfortunately, uh, the tragedy resulted. In the book, you speak to many of the people that are down there often, that have seen things that no one can possibly imagine. Who are some of these people, and what are they most afraid of when it comes to what we don't know about the ocean and the deep ocean? One of the scientists that I write about is Alan Jameson, who specializes in a, the deepest region of the ocean, which is called the Hadal Zone after Hades, the god of the underworld. And there are really unusual creatures down there. And they caught this one little crustacean in the Mariana Trench. And when they took it back to sequence it genetically, they discovered that 
it wasn't fully organic. There was nanoplastics and little micro bits of plastic actually embedded into its organs throughout its body. So it was a sort of a hybrid plastic organic creature. Wow. And they named it Eurasthenes plasticus because they caught a lot of these and they could not find one that did not have plastic incorporated into its body. And so when I asked Alan, okay, so how many other hybrid plastic organic creatures are there down there? And he just looked at me and said, all of them. So there is a sense that even though it's the most remote and the most difficult to access environment, that this is a small planet and we have an impact even on the farthest reaches of the deep ocean. Susan, what have you learned from visiting the depths of the ocean that maybe can tell us something about life here up at the surface? One of the things that I think is really required for ocean exploration and for dealing with the ocean in general, you need a certain humility uh, that I think would really serve us well to adopt a little bit more in our doings in the terrestrial world. You cannot stand in front of a 70-foot wave. You cannot descend into the abyssal depths of the ocean and think, hey, we're in charge here. <laughs> We've got it covered. I mean, like you will very quickly understand that there are forces much greater than we are, and we're not going to conquer them. We're not going to be able to somehow subdue uh, four tons of pressure per square inch. You can only really go there with a real sense of humility. And I think humility in general is very undervalued as a superpower. Susan Casey wrote The Underworld, Journeys to the Deaths of the Ocean. Susan, thanks. Thank you. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 7.45 on WBWAR's Morning Edition, Republicans have tried to restrict drag performances across the country, but few bills to do so have actually passed, and those that have were watered down, vetoed, or blocked by judges. It's 7.29. Join the Radio Boston team tomorrow at City Space for an evening exploring comic book culture, meet local artists, see their work, and take home some comic creations. Get details and tickets at wbumar.org slash events. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Police in Tennessee say officers shot and wounded a suspect yesterday after he tried to enter a Jewish school in Memphis with a gun. Investigators say when the man could not get into the building, he fired several shots and drove off in a truck. Officers later confronted and wounded the suspect who's hospitalized. Don Crow is the assistant police chief in Memphis. I personally truly believe that we have avoided a tragedy. I think this suspect was going to harm somebody before the day was over. No injuries were reported at the Margolin Hebrew Academy Finestone Yeshiva of the South. Nearly four months ago, six people were shot and killed at a private Christian school in Nashville before police killed the suspect there. All of Louisiana is under an excessive heat warning today. The National Weather Service says Baton Rouge will likely reach afternoon highs of 100 degrees through the rest of the week. Much of Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri, Arkansas, and Mississippi are also under heat warnings and advisories. NASA climate scientist Gavin Schmidt says it's been a warm year. 2023 is now a strong contender for the warmest year on record. We'll see how it really works out by the end of the year. 
Yesterday, Phoenix snapped its record for consecutive days reaching 110 or more. It ended at 31. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is eliminating the use of fossil fuels in all new city buildings and major renovations. WBUR's Walter Wachman reports. The mayor's executive order bans the use of fossil fuels in new city buildings like schools, community centers, and libraries. It also mandates that any updates to existing buildings' HVAC or hot water systems transition away from heating oil or natural gas. Wu says the order is part of the city's goal of being carbon neutral by 2050. And so wherever we can, at whatever scale is possible, we have to be accelerating those deadlines and doing whatever we can with all that we have today. Over 70 percent of Boston's carbon emissions come from buildings. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The city of Worcester plans to use pandemic relief money to fund a universal basic income pilot program. The city is designated $250,000 for the program. Certain households will get between $100 and $500 a month. In addition to the funds, families will get financial coaching. City officials say they hope the program will reduce stress for struggling families. Boston picked up more than 10 inches of rain last month. The National Weather Service says that's the rainiest July this century. We also had three tornadoes in just the last two weeks in New England. Joe Delicarpini is a meteorologist with the Weather Service. He says that number of twisters isn't too surprising. We track more of those because we know about them. If, you know, people have today have their cell phones, they have cameras, they can take video. We hear a lot of it from social media, whereas maybe 10, 15 years ago, um, we hear about some wind damage, but it could have been a tornado, but we just didn't know about it and never got a chance to check it out. Deli Carpini says tornadoes can happen suddenly. That's why he encourages people to have emergency alerts activated on their phones. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. The Red Sox lost to the Mariners 6-2 last night in Seattle. The Sox and M's will play again tonight. Team USA is moving on to the knockout stage of the Women's World Cup. The U.S. tied Portugal this morning in a scoreless match. The U.S. will play either Sweden or Italy on Sunday. Highs in the mid-70s today under clear skies. Temperatures fall to the upper 50s tonight, and it stays clear. Tomorrow, back to the mid-70s, and it'll be sunny. Right now, it's 66 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The PACT Act, which Congress passed last year, has been called the largest expansion of veterans' benefits in history. It covers vets made sick by burn pit smoke in Iraq and Afghanistan and toxic exposures going back to the Cold War in Vietnam. Now there's a push to get vets enrolled by August 9th, including by a voice you may know. Please, I beg of you, Get those benefits that you and your family have earned. Comedian John Stewart lobbied for the passage of the PACT Act. For anybody exposed to any theater of war that has terrible toxic things or military bases or even just if, if you've been through Jersey, just driven through, just I don't know that that would qualify you. No, it doesn't. Apologies to the Garden State, it does not. But NPR's Quill Lawrence sent this report about who should sign up. Dan Nevin served in Iraq, where a bomb blast cost him both his legs. And I am a spokesperson and ambassador for Wounded Warrior Project, a dad and a husband. Add to that he was diagnosed with cancer two years ago, which puzzled his doctors. He's young and healthy with no clear risk factors, except having been in Iraq. They're like, well, it could be some of the environmental, you know, impacts you had from your service. Dan connected with a veteran service organization, in his case, the Wounded Warrior Project, but there are lots, and they told him he qualified for the PACT Act simply because of where he served. And so now that you fall into that category of, you have a pretty significant eligibility, if you will, to get some of these cancers. So, like, go get checked out. Like, what's it going to hurt? Like, go get a chest x-ray, a colonoscopy. Nevin says he's lucky because they caught it early. And he's also lucky because in the past, it might have taken years for the VA to grant that his cancer was connected to his service. The PACT Act makes it automatic for a whole list of illnesses. But he knows lots of people haven't signed up yet. There's the person says, I feel fine, which I get because they're like, well, I just got to live my life, right? Leave that chapter behind me, recreate this new life where I'm not connected to the VA. I'm not in the military anymore. I don't wear a uniform. I have to focus on what's next. And that was me. Like, that was me. Or he says there's the I gave at the office excuse. Was like, well, damn, I've already paid all my dues. You know, I lost both legs. I have a traumatic brain injury. I have all these lingering issues. You know, like, I don't deserve more. And uh, yeah, cancer doesn't discriminate. And there's the I can't stand the VA excuse. And then there are, I think, the people disappointed by the VA before, have been let down before, so then why is this going to be any different? Like, why bother? And for them, Nevin says this time might be different. It should be easier. All veterans have to do is register an intent to file on the VA's website by August 9th to lock in a year of retroactive payments. Do it intent to file before then. Do it, do it, do it, and then do the things you need to file. The VA has already received more than 770,000 PACT Act claims, and so far, there's a 78% approval rate. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. Italy appears to be rethinking its embrace of a vast Chinese infrastructure program to open global road and shipping routes. Established in 2013, the Belt and Road Initiative seeks to grow Beijing's economic and political power globally. More than 150 countries have joined the initiative, and that includes Italy. But now the country's defense minister is calling the initiative, quote, wicked. He says the previous government's decision to join was atrocious because China delivered more exports to Italy than Italy 
Julie was able to send to China. Julio Poliese is a lecturer at Oxford University and a part-time professor at the European University Institute, and he joins us from Rome. Good morning. Good morning. So let's start with why Italy's rethinking this. Where did its agreement to join the Belt and Road Initiative go wrong? The coalition, uh, the populist coalition government uh, of 2019 decided uh, that in order to showcase results uh, to uh, the local electorate, it had to engage also into populist foreign policy and to a degree of political marketing. So Italy's embrace of the Belt and Road Initiative was really a way to uh, showcase that away from the shackles of the European Union and the impositions by Brussels, Italy, a G7 country, could go it alone and do a deal with uh, Xi Jinping's signature initiative. The problem is that while Italy expected to gain the reap uh, the best of both worlds with an engagement of China and potentially also political marketing back home, uh, then there was heavy pressure from the United States. And then, as we know, there was also a degree of bad luck because of COVID-19, US-China competition gaining uh, ground, uh, and China also engaging in uh, more uh, heavy-handed diplomacy. And that fed into a rethink, uh, not just in Italy, but in all Western capitals about their relationship, in fact, our relationship with, uh, with China. Now, Italy is the only G7 nation to join this initiative. You mentioned U.S. pressure. How much did U.S. pressure contribute to the rethinking? I think it um, was fundamental already at the time of the very signature because the uh, memorandum was hollowed out. Uh, so much so that Italy, the Italian government, including the very populist government, uh, became quite shy then in approaching Beijing to realize uh, some of the provisions uh, of uh, this Italy-China engagement. Uh, And so in the process, Italy didn't get the best of both worlds, uh, but uh, the worst of both worlds. Mm. Uh, It angered uh, the United States and actually it frustrated China, what was expecting uh, to drive a wedge between uh, transatlantic allies, but also to potentially build up on Italy-China relations, which did not uh, really happen already in 2019 and 2020. So what happens now? How does the Italian government untangle itself here? Uh, It's a tricky question because um, it is very possible that there will be embargoes by by China because it will amount to making uh, Xi lose face. This is Xi Jinping's uh, big uh, project. And so the trick will be to perhaps negotiate uh, another document that does not specify uh, the Belt and Road Initiative or potentially to uh, coordinate with like-minded partners, uh, such as the G7 partners, uh, countermeasures, uh, ameliorate uh, and to potentially buffer the Italian economy from potential Chinese retaliation. Giulio Pugliese teaches at Oxford University and the European University Institute. Thanks for your time. Thank you.
This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR's Morning Edition, a political strategist explains why former President Donald Trump's mounting legal troubles are only boosting his popularity among Republicans. It'll be sunny and in the mid-70s today. Tonight, clear skies and upper 50s. Good weather if you're headed to Gillette Stadium to see Beyonce. Tomorrow, more sun and upper 70s. We may get into the low 80s on Thursday. Right now, it's 66 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Cambridge-based Ribon Therapeutics is one of the latest local biotechs making cuts to its workforce. It is not clear exactly how many people will lose their jobs as a result. The startup says the layoffs will happen as it stops all of its preclinical work. The Boston Business Journal reports Ribon plans to instead focus on two drugs that are already in human trials. More than 30 nurses at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Methuen will vote tomorrow on whether to go on strike. Nurses there tell the Eagle Tribune they were not allowed to join the same union that Boston-based Dana-Farber nurses are part of. The group says they are paid about half of their Boston counterparts as a result. A Cambridge nonprofit just bought five acres of land near the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Draper plans to use the site to expand its engineering and research services for national security and space systems. Fifty people will eventually work there. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. There was a lot of discussion among Republicans this year about banning or restricting drag performances in front of children. But across the country, those attempts at state legislation largely failed. Here's KUAR's Josie Lenora in Little Rock. In Arkansas this year, a bill that would have banned drag performances in front of children was met with large public backlash. Republican State Senator Gary Stubblefield championed and sponsored the bill. Here he is back in January talking about how he thinks drag performance could harm children and take away their innocence. I can't think of any redeeming quality, anything good that can come from taking children and putting them in front of a bunch of grown men who are dressed like women. The bill Stubblefield sponsored would have banned performances in front of children that involved cross-dressing and that appealed to the, quote, prurient interest. That term prurient shows up in a lot of states' bills on the subject. 
In committees, Doublefield was asked by fellow lawmakers what the term means in a legal context. That word period interest means excessive interest in sexual matters. But critics feel the bill wouldn't hold up to basic legal scrutiny. Most drag shows do not appeal to the period interest. Even if they did, saying something appeals to the period interest under the First Amendment is not enough to regulate it. J.T. Morris is an attorney for the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, a pro-free speech group. Morris says drag bills are overly broad and could apply to many different kinds of performances. Well, you can't pass a state law based on your disagreement with somebody's viewpoint. That's a textbook First Amendment violation. And that could be one reason why, in at least 15 states, bills regulating drag performance died or were completely watered down on their way to becoming law. Three states did manage to pass restrictions. In Tennessee, a Trump-appointed U.S. District Judge Thomas Parker temporarily blocked that state's ban on drag performance in front of children due to the law's constitutional vagueness. In a ruling, Judge Parker says, whether some of us may like it or not, the First Amendment protects even indecent speech. A similar law in Florida is temporarily blocked. For a while, the only state with a drag ban in effect was Montana. A judge temporarily blocked that one, too, clearing the way for drag events just before the start of Montana Pride. Jeremy Stuthard, a drag performer in Arkansas, says to him, drag is about showmanship, not sex. I do drag as an art form. I take a decent-looking guy and turn him into a statuesque Barbie doll and have a great time and put smiles on people's faces, and that's all I really try to do. He says most children he meets seem to have a good time at drag brunches and story hours. They listen and they enjoy and they have their little popcorn or their little candies or whatever they get during that time, and they just enjoy a story from an actor who happens to be in a costume. Ultimately, the law regulating drag in Arkansas was amended until it hardly resembled a drag ban. Now the law, which passed by large margins, basically regulates stripping, not drag shows. Senator Stubblefield didn't write the amendment, but he said he agreed to it after he spoke with Attorney General Tim Griffin. The amended House bill is the only way to really protect minors. For another reason, it was the only draft that will stand up in court. There's none of us like to pass a bill that's going to get struck down by, by a judge and not help any children at all. In a statement, the Attorney General of Arkansas says he routinely works closely with legislators to make sure bills are consistent with the U.S. and Arkansas constitutions. He says the final version of this law does protect children. For NPR News, I'm Josie Lenora in Little Rock. This is NPR News. Coming up at 825 on WBUR's Morning Edition, how one school in California is expanding its art and music class offerings to include material that reflects its students' cultural backgrounds. It's 749. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. France is preparing to evacuate EU citizens in Niger as the crisis in the country deepens following a military coup. 
Polls show former President Trump is solidifying his lead among 2024 GOP presidential primary candidates, even as he faces mounting legal trouble. And Team USA is advancing to the knockout stage at the Women's World Cup after a scoreless draw against Portugal this morning. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, committed to offering eco-friendly options that are sustainably made and safe for your home and the environment. Locations at circlefurniture.com. Mid-70s and sunny today, upper 50s and clear skies tonight, upper 70s and sunny tomorrow, low 80s and mostly sunny on Thursday. Right now it's 66 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. For many Jewish New Yorkers, summer once meant fleeing city crowds and heading to the Catskill Mountains. Over the weekend, hundreds of people gathered in Ellenville for a festival celebrating the resort area once known as the Borscht Belt. Jim Zaroli reports. Early every summer, the exodus started. Families loaded up their cars and headed north out of Brooklyn and Queens into the mountains. They stayed in small lakeside bungalows and in huge hotels. For city kids like Peter Chester, summers in the Catskills were the highlight of the year. It was 24 hours seven, party time, fun time. You could run around barefoot, not burn your feet because there was really no concrete. You could swim and play ball and it was all in front of you. This weekend, Chester acted as a kind of docent for an exhibit of Catskills memorabilia, old dinner menus, signed guest books, and lots of pictures. Outside, there were contests and games. It was heavy on nostalgia. All right, who's ready to hula hoop? And there was music. A group called the Shul Band played klezmer music. Very many of the families who came to the Catskills in its heyday were Jewish. In the 20s and 30s, they were often barred from staying in hotels, so they started their own. It was the world of dirty dancing, giant resorts with something for everyone in the family to do. And as much food as you wanted. Sandy Strickler brought her kids here. Well, for me, it was a joy. I didn't have to cook a thing. There were three meals a day, then a fourth meal after the show in the coffee shop. It was food, 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 food ruled the roost. Mothers and kids stayed all week. Husbands usually came up after work on Friday. It made for some uh, fraternizing. Oh, there are stories. And the best one was a story at the Gilberts Hotel. Somebody sent a letter to the husbands that the wives were fooling around with some of the, think dirty dancing. And so they engineered the husbands, a few of them, a surprise Thursday night. Came up Thursday night and yeah, (laughs) caught him. (laughs) At night, you put on your best clothes and went to a show. Singers such as the Berry Sisters, comedians like Milton Berle and Red Buttons. There was a distinctive Borscht Belt style of humor, the kind of rapid-fire one-liners Henny Youngman was famous for. You must compromise when you're married. She wanted a fur coat, I want an automobile. We compromise. Bought a fur coat, we keep in the garage. <laughs> Up-and-coming comedians like Joan Rivers and Jerry Seinfeld would do two or three shows a night at different hotels. Again, Peter Chester. 
it was a proving ground for young talent, the likes of which the world has never seen. There was nothing as complete and total as the Borscht Belt offered to aspiring entertainers. Even the fictional Mrs. Maisel from the Amazon TV show did a turn here. Here we are in the Catskills, and I'm starving. Where can you get a decent meal around here? Today, people still come to the Catskills, but the old hotels are mostly gone, killed off by what's called the three A's, air conditioning, airplanes, and assimilation. Younger generations are spending their vacations elsewhere. But there's a push on to start a museum dedicated to Catskills history. Organizers say the current craze for mid-century design for the days of the Rat Pack and Mad Men suggests there's plenty of interest in the Borscht Belt era. For NPR News, I'm Jim Zaroli. We take you now to southern Turkey, where an archaeological dig has been turning up a trove of ancient artifacts. Some date back thousands of years. NPR's Peter Kenyon went to this site and has this report. The site, known as Zerzavan Castle, is generally known as a Roman-era military garrison. But as archaeologists have painstakingly excavated the site, it has yielded up underground living areas with layer after layer of artifacts that are far older, some of which appear to be unique to this site. Aitach Choskun heads up the excavation team. He says it was nearly 20 years ago, while on a visit to the nearby city of Diyarbakir, that he came upon this place and knew he had to start digging. I first came to Diyarbakir in 2005, and in 2006, when I saw this hill, I saw some pieces of artifacts, and I knew this is an old settlement, and no excavation had been done before. So as soon as I saw it, I knew it had to be a dig, because there must be something significant underneath. Choskun says the initial excavation at the southern end of the site revealed, among other things, the remains of an ancient church that was gradually being exposed to the elements and needed protection. He says as they moved on to the northern section, they also found a temple known as the Mithras Temple, dedicated to a god popular among Roman soldiers. After several years of work here, Choskun says he's convinced the layers of artifacts here will keep this site on the archaeological map for a long time. The digging we're doing inside the castle walls is 57,000 square meters. It's a huge area. And outside of it, including here, is like 10 million square meters. And right now, Zerzavan Castle and Mithras Temple are in the temporary World Heritage List of UNESCO. We are working to get the site included in UNESCO's permanent list of World Heritage Sites. Among the important finds, he says, is a beautifully preserved and ornately decorated Roman-era bronze baptismal bucket that's on display at the Diyarbakir Archaeological Museum. He says they also found an Assyrian-era stamp, a kind of official seal carved into stone that Choshkun says dates back some 3,000 years. Choskun and his colleagues point out more of what's been found here, an underground church, a huge rock altar, a long water canal, and more. He believes perhaps 1,500 or more people, military and civilian, may have lived here in times of peace. And during wartime, it's possible 10,000 or more people from the surrounding area sought shelter here. That, he says, could explain the underground living areas. He says based on what's been unearthed so far, it's not an exaggeration to say the Zerzavan Castle Mithras Temple site has the potential to change our understanding of this part of the world and its archaeological and architectural history. And there's more to come. 
Birçok yeniliğe açık burası. It's totally open to new discoveries, that's for sure. We don't know what else we'll find. We've only dug around 10% of the area on the surface within the castle walls. And beyond the castle walls, you see more living areas, an 8-kilometer water canal, the necropolis where the leading families buried their dead, and ceremonial areas, so there will be more to come. As an example, Choshkun says so far they've excavated six residential complexes within the castle walls. There are 99 more still below the surface. That's just one reason he believes this site will continue to offer up contributions to human knowledge of times past for many years to come. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, in Diyarbakir Province, Turkey. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm e. Martinez. MBTA General Manager Phil Ang will be on Radio Boston today talking about plans to improve service on the T. Take a listen at 11 and 3 on WBUR. Lots of sun in mid-70s today. Skies stay clear tonight and it dips into the 50s. Tomorrow a bit warmer in the upper 70s and sunny. Thursday will be warmer still in the low 80s under mostly sunny skies. Right now it's 66 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The crisis in Niger deepens as neighboring countries warn against military intervention and France prepares to evacuate EU citizens. It's Tuesday, August 1st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Arizona's record-setting extreme heat wave has broken, but criticism to the response is mounting. There is no sustainable funding for this work on a public level or on a private level with nonprofits. Also, why Republican support for Donald Trump continues despite his growing legal troubles. It reinforces one of Trump's core messages that the system is rigged against you and me and him. And this hour, they could replicate through AI. Ballroom scenes, party scenes, any scenes that needed, you know, tons of extras. How AI threatens some TV and movie actors. Sunny in 70s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Forecasters have issued excessive heat warnings for several central U.S. states today. Dangerous heat indexes could be about 110 degrees from Wichita to Texas to New Orleans. The southwest is also under an excessive heat watch. Phoenix could see temperatures as high as 116 degrees today. The Pentagon says President Biden will keep the headquarters of the U.S. Space Command in Colorado Springs. From Colorado Public Radio, Dan Boyce reports it had been scheduled to move to Alabama. The command brings all military branches together at Peterson Space Force Base to enact the Defense Department's space-based missions. Colorado Republican Representative Doug Lamborn praises President Biden's call to keep the command in the springs. Russia and China are doing some really sobering things in space, and not just our economy, but our military is dependent on space. Lamborn says moving to Alabama would have resulted in delays that would have made U.S. satellite infrastructure more vulnerable to attack. 
For NPR News, I'm Dan Boyce in Colorado Springs. The largest expansion of benefits in the history of the Department of Veterans Affairs is now underway. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports veterans suffering from toxic exposures can now apply. The PACT Act, which Congress passed last year, expedites coverage for vets made sick by burn pit smoke in Iraq and Afghanistan and toxic exposures going back to the Cold War and Vietnam. Veterans may get a year of retroactive benefits if they apply by August 9th, a deadline that advocates, including comedian Jon Stewart, have been pushing. Please, uh, I beg of you, uh, get those benefits that you and your family have earned. And if The VA has already received more than 770,000 PACT Act claims. So far, there's a 78 percent approval rate. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. Police in Memphis say they shot and critically wounded a suspect yesterday who had opened fire at a Jewish school in the Tennessee city. The suspect had apparently tried and failed to get inside the school. No one in the building was hurt. The ACLU and some parents in Oklahoma are suing to stop a new religious charter school from opening. St. Isidore is an online Catholic school. Opponents say it could impose its religious views on some students. Beth Wallace of member station KOSU says the school board majority believes the Oklahoma Charter School is needed. The reasons that those board members give who voted yes, they say it was a vote for religious liberty. Um, School choice is also a really hot topic in Oklahoma, as with a lot of the rest of the country. Um, And by school choice, I mean subsidizing more private education with public dollars. This wave of school choice policy has really hit Oklahoma, and St. Isidore is certainly a part of that. Beth Wallace reporting. This is NPR. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Maura Healey is deciding what to do about the state's new budget. Legislators approved a $56 billion spending plan yesterday, one month after the new fiscal year began. Details now from WBUR Steve Brown. The governor can approve or veto individual line items or reduce the amounts allocated if she so desires. Highlights of the bill include free tuition for students in community college nursing programs, in-state tuition at state schools for undocumented residents, and no charge for phone calls made by inmates in prisons and houses of correction. House Ways and Means Chair Aaron Michaelowitz said it is a budget to be proud of. We are sending Her Excellency, the governor, her first budget, one that is balanced, thoughtful, and forward-thinking, one that tackles the difficult new issues of our time, but also make sure we are protecting the programs that some of our most vulnerable populations rely on. The governor has until August 10th to act on the budget. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Some Massachusetts lawmakers want to tax streaming services like Netflix and Hulu. They tell the Boston Globe it's part of an effort to fund local cable channels. A proposal would require streaming companies to pay a 5% fee on revenue generated in the state. That money would fund nearly 200 community access channels. Officials say some of the fee would likely get passed on to customers. The man suspected of killing a four-year-old boy in a hit-and-run in Hyde Park is expected to appear in court today. Olgan Joseph turned himself in to authorities yesterday. Police say he immediately drove away from the scene after hitting the boy last month. Joseph faces charges of motor vehicle homicide and driving an unregistered and uninsured car. 
A Massachusetts man who runs an orphanage in Haiti says he's praying for the safe return of a New Hampshire woman kidnapped in that country. Alex Dorsonville and her young child were kidnapped last week in Port-au-Prince. Langengel runs the orphanage Brit's Home. She was there to help the poorest of the poor. And we can never forget that Haiti is the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. And I am sure that her parents are very much grieving and upset. Dorsonville was living in Haiti and working as a nurse at a Christian school there. Last week, the U.S. State Department recommended that U.S. citizens in Haiti evacuate the country amidst a rise in gang violence. Waltham-based Thermo Fisher Scientific is settling a lawsuit over its use of cells that were taken from a black woman decades ago without consent. The cells from Henrietta Lacks were the world's first capable of replicating outside of the body. They were taken without her consent while getting treatment for cervical cancer. They were later used to create vaccines for polio and COVID-19. Her family argued that companies like Thermo Fisher need to pay to use those cells. The specifics of the settlement haven't been disclosed. It's 8.07. WBUR supporters include the Cy Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts, towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at CySimsFoundation.org. The Red Sox lost to the Mariners 6-2 last night in Seattle. The Sox and M's will face off again tonight. Mostly sunny today with a high in the mid-70s. Mostly clear overnight. It'll drop down to the 50s. Sunny again tomorrow and back to the 70s. Right now, it's 66 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. It's hard enough making a living as an actor, but what if your likeness could be filmed once, just once, and used multiple times, maybe forever, without pay, all thanks to new AI technologies. We're going to have that story in just a few minutes. But first, early in Donald Trump's 2016 presidential run, he boasted that he could bend Republican voters to his will. Remember this? I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. Trump survived multiple scandals and impeachments when he was president. And now, after two indictments and a possible third, Trump is still the undisputed frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination. White House correspondent Franco Ordonez is here to tell us all about this. Uh, Franco, he's been called the Teflon Don, uh, but let's fact check this. Is it really true that Donald Trump gets a bump when he gets indicted? I mean, for the most part, yes, or at least as it relates to the Republican primaries. In March, a several weeks before the first indictment, Trump had just 43 percent of the vote in Republican polling, according to a real clear politics average. But a day after he was charged, in a hush money scheme to an adult film actress, his numbers had jumped to 50%. Two months later, he was indicted for mishandling classified documents. His polling average jumped again. And polls, of course, go up and down, and they did dip a bit, but not much, and they're back up. Now, as Trump warns that he could be indicted over January 6th. And these strike me as the kind of scandals that would derail 
pretty much any other political campaign. So why is Donald Trump different? Yeah, that's right. I mean, many politicians try to avoid or downplay these kind of scandals, even a small one. But Trump has really embraced his legal problems. He's turned them into part of his case also to return to the White House. I talked to Doug High. He's a longtime Republican strategist. He told me that the indictments have helped Trump keep attention and also help shape the narrative of the primary. The bizarre thing about this indictment or any of these indictments is it reinforces one of Trump's core messages that the system is rigged against you and me and him. And so anything that comes from this, it becomes more proof, not of Trump's wrongdoing, but of the system being rigged. He adds that Trump has had help from his rivals. Instead of attacking him, they've largely rushed to his defense. And that's because Trump has so much support from the base. And criticizing him isn't a risk they're willing to take yet. So instead, you hear them echo Trump's claims that this is politically motivated, which all just lends more credibility to his message. All right. So for all of Trump's resilience, I mean, is there anything at all that does wind up sticking to him? Well, A, we should emphasize that the polls we're talking about are Republican primary polls. And it's one thing to win the Republican nomination. It's another to win the general election. So while the indictments may have boosted Trump's chances with Republicans, it could hurt him with independents and swing voters. The general election is a long way away, but his legal troubles have appeared to hurt him with those voters. And we did see that before in the midterms. And a recent NPR poll found that a majority of Americans, including 52 percent of independents, believe he's done something illegal. And that's why some Republican leaders and some Republican donors are worried about Trump's long term prospects in the general election, even though he's been dominating the primaries. That's White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Thanks a lot for your reporting. Thanks, Abe. Residents of Phoenix, Arizona are used to the heat, but recent temperatures have really been pushing it. The Desert City recently set a new record, 31 straight days with temperatures over 110 degrees. Local governments and nonprofits have provided relief, but with more heat waves expected in the future, some in Phoenix say those efforts aren't sustainable. Kirsten Dorman with member station KJZZ reports. At this hydration station in a Salvation Army parking lot in Phoenix, volunteer Manny Guzman has coolers full of ice water on offer to anyone who needs one. Right here, you know, it's covered in ice, ready to pass. This site is one of more than 200 in the valley that offer water or places to hang out in air conditioning for a few hours. David Handula, the director of Phoenix's Office of Heat Response and Mitigation, helps coordinate this heat relief network. He says it offers a lot of help. Right now, when we look at where the network has the most capacity, that's in the 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. window. In the city of Phoenix, that is when 80 percent of the 911 calls related to heat occur. Handula says organizations in the network are doing what they can, but keeping heat relief sites open on weekends is a challenge. They're trying to figure out how to extend hours into the morning and night. It's not only the unhoused that we need to be aware of. Melissa Guardaro is part of coordinating the network, too. It's also people who have shelter but are faced with difficult choices of whether to pay for air conditioning or pay for their rent or medical services or their other costs along the way. Guardaro teaches at Arizona State University's School of Sustainability. Any gap that we have in our infrastructure becomes very apparent when people all of a sudden 
cannot get to their job because it's just too hot to walk to their transit node or they're working outdoors and they're feeling ill from the day before. Maricopa County has replaced roughly 500 air conditioning units for free for low-income households vulnerable to the heat. It plans to replace five to 600 more in the coming months. And this summer, the county is spending $2.4 million on heat relief just for the homeless. Cities including Phoenix and area nonprofits are contributing too. We are so grateful for the funding that came out of Maricopa County with our city partners this year. Reverend Katie Sexton Wood is with the Arizona Faith Network, which operates cooling stations and respite centers. She's worried about longer-term solutions. There is no sustainable funding for this work throughout the city on a public level or on a private level with nonprofits. So that means we run out of funding, we run out of space, and we run out of people predominantly for funding on the nonprofit side. Judy Schwiebert represents Phoenix's North Valley in the state legislature. I don't think that our state government is stepping up the way we need to step up in order to provide a sustainable structure for making sure that folks are taken care of. Schwiebert and at least one other Democrat in Arizona's state house are calling on Congress to pass a bill that would add extreme heat to the federal list of what qualifies as a major disaster event. Arizona Congressman Ruben Gallego, also a Democrat, introduced a bill to do that in June. It has one Republican co-sponsor but has seen no action since being referred to a subcommittee June 12th. For NPR News, I'm Kirsten Dorman in Phoenix. Some TV and film background actors worry that they'll be replaced by AI. It's an issue at the heart of the labor standoff between Hollywood Studios and the Screen Actors Guild. NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen reports. Alexandria Rubalcaba is a full-time background actor in Los Angeles. On the set of the Disney Plus show WandaVision during the pandemic, the production crew told her to report to a tractor trailer on set. All the other background actors and extras had to do the same. They kind of wrangled everybody together, took them into a trailer, and one by one had us scanned. She says her face and body were being scanned by a series of cameras on metal rigs behind glass. Have your hands out, have your hands in, look this way, look that way. Let us see your scared face. Let us see your surprise face. Just basically going through different emotions. About 15 minutes later, a digital replica of Rubalcaba was created. She doesn't know what it will be used for or if it will be ever used at all. If it is used, she won't be getting paid for it. How the latest AI technology will be deployed to make movies is a key issue in the ongoing actor's strike with Hollywood Studios. Rubalcaba makes about $180 a day. She's worried about losing that. AI is eventually going to weed out background and they're not going to have any use for background actors anymore. The group representing the studios say that is not their intention. The studios say signing up for the job means your AI likeness could be used in the future. The Screen Actors Guild says their members should know how AI will be used before they take on an acting gig. Andrew Suskind is an associate professor in Drexel University's film department. He says the rapid development of AI tools has the whole industry on edge. The actors, extras, and the writers are right to see this moment as their best chance to set up what the rules would be in the use of AI. Five background actors interviewed by NPR all said they were caught off guard in recent months by having to undergo body scans by studios. Rebecca Safier is a Los Angeles-based background actor. She was afraid to say no. Because you don't know 
what's going to get back to casting you don't know if if they're going to like call up casting and say that oh this person was being difficult and maybe not say why then maybe they won't hire you again because that's the way the system works big name actors stand to make good money by licensing out their digital likeness the screen actors guild is all for that but it's different for background actors who aren't famous some say hyper realistic ai will make them disposable or decimate their earnings background actor katrina sherwood recently refused to be scanned by a studio I always said, well, you know, I'm not going to consent to that because I wasn't hired to do a body scan today. Um, and if you're willing to give me 100 uh, percent increase in my day rate, I would be open to that. And of course, no one ever took me up on it. Drexel Professor Suskind says many actors get their start by doing background work. Others make a career out of it. But he says with big studios under financial pressure like never before, using digital clones could save lots of money. If they could replicate through AI. Imagine, you know, ballroom scenes, party scenes, any scenes that needed, you know, tons of extras, not paying $180 per day, plus meals, plus a costuming. Studio representatives declined NPR's interview requests, but actor Rubel Kaba says she has this message to strike negotiators. But just be fair to the to the little guy. Background actors are more than willing to give everything they have. So be appreciative of that and be fair, not unreasonable. AI is one of the main sticking points for writers as well as actors in what is the biggest Hollywood shutdown since the 1960s. Bobby Allen, NPR News, Los Angeles. And just a note, many NPR staffers are members of SAG-AFTRA, but were under a different contract. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBOR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Pope Francis addresses World Youth Day events in Portugal this week, 10 years after he first encouraged young Catholics to shake things up in their own churches. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Many Democrats think that delivering tangible economic benefits to working class and lower income voters will help them win more elections. But is that true? People are capable of voting to increase the minimum wage and supporting an authoritarian candidate at the same time. Understanding that contradiction and its impact on American democracy. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Travel in the evening is going to be slower for some MBTA commuters. The transit agency says buses will replace red line trains between JFK UMass and North Quincy. That'll happen starting at 845 each Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday night for the next two weeks. On the commuter rail, buses will replace trains between South Station and Braintree after 730 each weeknight this month. That affects the Kingston, Middleborough and Greenbush lines. Sunny and breezy today with a high of 76, mostly clear and a low around 58 tonight. Tomorrow, about the same as today, sunny with a high of 77. Right now, it's 67 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, 
providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. As students start heading back to school, many have decisions to make, like whether to take choir or a theater. But some schools are expanding their offerings to make room for art that reflects students' cultural heritage. CAP Radio's Srishti Prabha reports from Sacramento, California. Very good. Wow. Okay, and who remembers how many beats is this? It's a spring morning at Del Paso Manor Elementary School, and the 10 and 11-year-olds in the class are sitting cross-legged on the floor as Jenan Priyan Levine teaches them the tabla, a pair of drums played in the Middle East and South Asia. I like tabla because it's played in our home country, and I wanted to go back in our country and then play for some people who are inspired to do tabla. That's student Rustam, whose family recently came here as refugees from Afghanistan. We aren't using his last name because his father still fears for his family's safety. Rustam's younger sister, Hosai, is also in the tabla class. My mom always wanted to do that, but she didn't get a chance to. So I wanted to teach her. For both Hosai and Rustam, these tabla lessons have helped create a sense of belonging in a foreign country. A 2019 study from Rice University found this approach can lead to better educational outcomes and improve social and emotional health for students. But those benefits can be hard to tap into when so much of arts education focuses on Eurocentric culture that diverse student populations have difficulty relating to. Our children and our students are the vessels of their culture. Kevin Kane runs a UCLA program that encourages performing artists to work in local classrooms. He says in his line of work, the conversation around arts education has progressed from just access to the arts. But we've really been leaning into is culturally sustaining. It does involve immigration or migration stories or exile stories. It does involve what it means to be a marginalized or underrepresented person, historically um, discriminated against person. It involves all of that. Hosai and Rustam's dad, who we're calling by his first initial R, finds a joy in the cultural connection his children get to make in their Sacramento school. It definitely makes me a lot happier because the time that I really wanted to learn one of the um, musical instruments, time did not help me. He has fond memories of the tabla playing at family gatherings back in Afghanistan, but he never got a chance to learn how to play himself. So I really want my kids to either uh, play tabla or other musical instruments as they love to do. Without arts education, I wouldn't be here. If it wasn't for hip hop, but I'd probably be incarcerated or probably not being in the, in the life that I really want. Alex Almaraz is a teaching artist who leads hip hop classes in Sacramento City Unified Schools as part of a collaboration with the nonprofit Clara. And then there was other dancers that really brought life to the culture, right? It was not just him that created the move. Almaraz's passion for the arts stems from L.A.'s dancing, where he continues to pursue street dance and has lectured at colleges. He says his work with public school students has been life-changing. To be able to be an individual like myself, who is a black and brown individual, to speak and be able to show them that there's an opportunity that can they can be just like me and be able to speak in front of a class and have an authority that's positive and, and it gives them a new outlook on life. Do it! 
I need all the energy in the world. Arts educators like Almarez embody the power of culturally reflective arts education. Such programs take work and close collaboration with local communities. California has dedicated almost $1 billion to arts education this year. Advocates like Kevin Kane are optimistic this money will usher in a new era of arts education in the state, hopefully setting a precedent for the rest of the country. For NPR News, I'm Srishti Prabha in Sacramento. In many parts of the world, cricket's song is a part of the soundtrack of summer. British researchers have discovered that the way crickets rub their wings together to make that sound is kind of like a dating app for insects. Tom Chergenza is a professor at the University of Exeter. All the times when you hear insects singing in your garden or cicadas or grasshoppers or bush crickets, it's almost invariably the males that are singing and they're almost invariably singing for one reason, which is to try to attract females. Tregenza says studying cricket courtship is a way of understanding sexy time behavior in other animals. The tail of the peacock is a classic example of a crazy male trait that doesn't seem to be much use for anything, but they've got it just to try to attract females. And we study crickets because their singing is kind of like a, an audio example of something like a peacock's tail. Tregenza and his colleagues have been watching insects in one meadow in Spain for years. We catch them, we stick a little tag on each one, and then we've got a network of 140 video cameras all over this field, and we observe them all the time. So it's kind of like Big Brother house, but with crickets in it. And he says millions of hours of video footage reveals that for crickets, it's all about one-upsmanship. So males are competing with each other to try to get mating to the females. The male crickets sing and female crickets listen. The females' ears are actually on their legs. They're not much use for like you know, listing for predators and they don't use them for hunting or anything. They pretty much just use them for finding a mate. You know, I've always wondered what makes a male cricket sexy. Why Tregenza, have you wondered that? Uh, I just have. <laughs> Tregenza says it's all about standing out from the crowd with louder, longer songs. And that kind of makes sense for females because a male that sings a lot has got the energy to do a lot of singing. And that suggests that he's a good male. You know, he's got genes that have allowed him to eat enough food to get himself into good condition and do a lot of singing. Male crickets, they found, also try to outperform each other, and that creates a virtual orchestra of sound. But the cricket chorus comes to a halt if a rival gets a little too close. Coming up tomorrow on Morning Edition, the iconic Hollywood sign towers over Los Angeles. It was created as a promotion for a real estate development, but these days it's come to mean so much more. To hear the story, listen to NPR on your smartphone or your smart speaker or turn on the radio. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, remembering actor Paul Rubens, who rose to fame in the 1980s as the groundbreaking Pee Wee Herman. He's died at age 70. 
It's 829. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Russia is blaming Ukraine for a drone crashing into a high-rise building in Moscow today for the second time in two days. Akardi Metler lives in the building. He recalls the first incident heard here through a BBC interpreter. Everything was as normal. We heard a loud bang. There wasn't much panic, just everyone went outside. Thank God there seemed to be no casualties. Officials in Kyiv have stopped short of taking responsibility for the attacks. The U.S. takes up the presidency of the U.N. Security Council today. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, says the U.S. will make food insecurity its top priority for the Security Council. She says Russia's war in Ukraine has only made things worse. What Russia is doing with uh, its unprovoked war on Ukraine is actually exacerbating the situation. If we look at the number of countries that have been uh, blocked from getting needed food assistance from the Black Sea Grain Initiative. The ambassador was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. Moscow recently withdrew from the grain deal brokered by the U.N. with help from Turkey. That deal allowed safe passage for ships hauling grain and other products from Ukrainian ports along the Black Sea. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is not backing down from a plan to move the John D. O'Brien School of Math and Science. The O'Brien currently shares a campus with another vocational school in Roxbury. The city plans to move it to West Roxbury. That's drawn pushback from some parents, teachers, and students. They're afraid the move could lead to a decline in student diversity and longer commute times for students. Mayor Wu told WBUR's Radio Boston the administration is trying to come up with easier ways to get kids to the West Roxbury campus. Transportation-wise, we were at the school when the commuter rail train rolled right by the school, and so we've continued to have conversations with the MBTA and with the administration. That would be a game-changer for that entire region of the city, much less this campus and, and students. Wu says the district is also exploring other sites for a new campus. Former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton will be the featured speaker at the NAACP National Convention in Boston tonight. That will mark the end of the nearly week-long event. Yesterday, more than 1,600 delegates voted on policies the association will prioritize on its agenda in the coming year. The Boston Globe reports they include stricter gun control laws and a resolution denouncing legislation that blocks teaching critical race theory. A popular tourist spot over the Deerfield River in western Massachusetts will be closed for repairs for an extended period. Aldenborn reports on the Bridge of Flowers. 
The bridge, which features a walkway surrounded by flowers, trees, and shrubs, has attracted tourists for decades. It runs between Shelburne Falls and the town of Buckland. A recent engineering study showed the structure needs major attention. Jan Morin is with the Shelburne Falls Fire District, which owns the bridge. There is some cracking in the arches that need to be dealt with. It needs to be resurfaced, recoded, and then they're going to replace the water main is in that bridge that brings the water to Buckland. That's the only source of water to the Buckland side. Workers will need to remove all the soil and plantings on the bridge. Morin says the district hopes to start construction in the spring of 2024 and reopen in the spring of 2025. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. It's 833 We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Red Sox losing streak is now up to three games. They lost to the Mariners 6-2 last night in Seattle. The teams will play again tonight. The U.S. women are moving to the knockout stage of the World Cup. They played to a scoreless tie against Portugal this morning. The U.S will play either Sweden or Italy on Sunday morning. Highs in the mid-70s today under clear skies. Temperatures fall to the upper 50s tonight and it stays clear. Tomorrow back to the mid-70s and it'll be sunny. Right now it's 67 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com From Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faudel in Washington, D.C. I'm May Martinez in Culver City, California. The nation of Kenya has offered to send a 1,000 police officers to Haiti and lead a multinational effort to support the Haitian police. This comes just days after the U.S. State Department ordered most American citizens to leave Haiti after the kidnapping of an American nurse and her daughter. Gang violence has been widespread in Haiti since the country's president was assassinated two years ago. For more on this, we're joined now by Jacqueline Charles, correspondent with Miami Herald. Uh, Jacqueline, why has the offer come from Kenya and not Haiti's neighbors, like the U.S. maybe, for example? Well, the U.S. has said that they do not want to lead a force, even though they support this. They have written a resolution that's been before the U.N. Security Council now for about nine months. The U.S. had been hoping that Canada would step up and lead. Um, And though Canada hasn't publicly said no, they also haven't raised their hand. So it's been nine months since the Haitian government requested international help with a specialized force to come in and to help the Haitian National Police. We've seen Jamaica said that they're willing to help field some sort of multinational force. But again, up until now, no one has said that, yes, we will lead it. So this development with Kenya comes after months of discussions and debates at the UN. And Kenya also saying that, you know, African nations should take more of a leadership role in helping Haiti address this um, security humanitarian crisis. What about the country of Haiti? How are they responding? 
Well, you know, whenever you talk about foreign intervention, it's always controversial in Haiti, right? Given the history, you know, in terms of the U.S., um, you know, back in the early 1900s. But when you talk to the average Haitian, they just want help. They recognize that in the country of 12 million people with only 3,500 police officers on the streets and throughout the country on any given day, that that's just not going to cut it. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen a resurgence in gang violence even before this kidnapping of the American couple you saw dozens of families basically fled, took up residency um, in front of the U.S. Embassy in Port-au-Prince because they had basically been pushed out of their homes by gangs. Um, they have since left, but they are still homeless. They are now at a school sleeping there. Um, we've got a number of kidnappings even before this American couple. Um, a very prominent doctor who worked in the Ministry of Health, he has been kidnapped. We have a journalist who has been held now for over a month. Um, so people basically feel feel a sense of desperation and really in need of help. And at this point, let it come from where it can come from. Mentioned how it's going to be an international group led by Kenya. What other countries are going to help out? Well, like I said, we've already had Jamaica that has volunteered in a couple of other Caribbean countries. But yesterday, um, Antonio Gutierrez, the UN Secretary General, who has been pushing for, quote unquote, a robust force, has asked for regional countries, Haiti's neighbors, to also step up. Because what you're talking about is a thousand police officers from Kenya. But what the UN also recognizes that what Haiti needs is military muscle. When you look at these gangs, they are heavily armed. They control at least 80 percent of Port-au-Prince. You really need assets. The country doesn't have any helicopters. It doesn't have any planes. So it really needs the ability to go in there and to secure infrastructure and also to root out these gangs. So the Kenya model right now, it's a start, but it's going to take a couple of other steps. And we're going to see, you know, how this shapes out. Who else says, yes, we'll go in. And when might these uh, police officers arrive in Haiti? That is unclear. Kenya is going to send an assessment team in the coming days and weeks to Haiti. And then we will have a better idea in terms of what is needed and how they're going to build this multinational force. All right. Jacqueline Charles covers Haiti and the Caribbean for the Miami Herald. Jacqueline, thanks a lot. Thank you. This week, young Catholics are gathered in Lisbon, Portugal, to hear from Pope Francis and to engage in a week of celebration centered on their faith. The event is World Youth Day, even though it's more than a day, really, since it goes until Sunday. To talk about this moment in the life of the Catholic Church and its 86-year-old leader, Pope Francis, we're joined by Heidi Schlumpf, executive editor of the National Catholic Reporter, and she joins us from Chicago. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Layla. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So Heidi, what do we expect in Lisbon this week? Well, as you said, it is a celebration. And so uh, I expect to see the Pope very energized by a lot of young people, reportedly up to a million people wow. celebrating their faith. But I think there's also going to be some realization that all is not perfect in the church. Um, some of the, re go ahead. Oh, you mentioned all is not perfect in the church. I mean, the Catholic Church is seeing a decline in attendance. A lot of younger people who don't see the church keeping pace with the challenges and cultural changes of our time. How is World Youth Day part of that outreach maybe to change that? 
Yeah, as you said, the reality on the ground, even in Portugal, is where even when in a Catholic country like that, where 80% of the population identify as Catholic, but less than 20% attend mass weekly. Mm. And so we also have reports, uh, a recent report about sex abuse there. So I think what you're going to see Pope Francis doing is trying to energize young Catholics with his message, with themes that he's been giving throughout his pontificate about mercy, about openness, about the need to go to the margins of society. Has that been resonating? Yeah, I think it does. It really resonates with a lot of um, Catholics, I think, here in the United States. Over the 10 years in his papacy, Pope Francis has really been trying to continue the work of the Second Vatican Council, which really sought to bring the church into the modern world. Um, one of his most famous sayings is, who am I to judge when he was asked a question about a gay couple? So I think that message of openness and inclusion while it has led um, to some polarization in the U.S. church because not everyone agrees with it, I think it really has helped to make the church more relevant. Now, there had been a question about whether the Pope would attend at all this year because of his health. How is his health? Yes. So, you know, the Pope had hernia surgery in June, and there were some questions after that surgery about whether he would still make this trip to Portugal or whether he would finally start slowing down a little bit. Um, also, earlier this year, he had bronchitis. He suffers from chronic leg and hip pain. You, you often see him using a wheelchair or a cane. But he does seem determined to go forward. Um, you mentioned he's 86. He will be the oldest pope to ever preside over a World Youth Day celebration. Wow. And it's likely it'll be hot and busy in, in Lisbon. He's going to give a lot of speeches. So I think we will be getting a glimpse of how he's doing physically as we watch him. Before I let you go, if you could just put in context how influential this week is. I mean, does this actually influence the, ba the Vatican, World Youth Day? Yes, so definitely I think that this is part of his legacy, the way uh, Pope Francis connects with people. Um, the church is in the middle of a, a three-year consultative process called a synod, and I think we're going to see a lot of connecting with people in practical ways. Um, I don't see Pope Francis slowing down in any way yet. Heidi Schlumpf is executive editor of The National Catholic Reporter. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes here on WBUR's Morning Edition, the Marketplace Morning Report has a preview of the June report on construction spending out later this morning. It's expected to show that non-residential construction is keeping the sector alive. It'll be sunny and in the mid-70s today. Tonight, clear skies and upper 50s. Tomorrow, more sun and upper 70s. We may get into the low 80s on Thursday. Right now, it's 67 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Good News Garage. Over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996. Tax deductions and free towing. Goodnewsgarage.org. And innuendo. The Massachusetts Sales Tax-Free Weekend is August 12th. Hunter Douglas Automated Power View Shades at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. Rhode Island-based CVS plans to lay off 5,000 workers nationwide. Executives say most of those people affected are in corporate positions, not people who work in stores. The pharmacy giant says the move is part of a cost-cutting strategy that also includes limiting travel and the use of consultants. 
Two Boston hospitals are once again ranked among the nation's best. U.S. News & World Report named Massachusetts General and Brigham and & Women's Hospitals on its list of top 22 hospitals in the country. This is the fifth year the hospitals have received the honor. Unlike in the past, this year's list did not rank the hospitals in order, so neither MGH nor Brigham & Women's received a specific ranking number. A popular South End restaurant that closed during the pandemic is getting new life at a smaller location in Newton. The new Stella restaurant opened last week at Newton Center. The spot only has 15 seats but offers favorite menu items of the original Stella. That includes meatballs and pasta bolognese. It's 8.45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Moe. Focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at Mott.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Martinez. The actor Paul Rubens, best known for his work as Pee Wee Herman, died of cancer Sunday. He was 70. Rubens' work included the 1985 film Pee Wee's Big Adventure and the children's show Pee Wee's Playhouse, which produced new episodes from 1986 to 1990. Here to talk about Paul Rubens' legacy, we asked Pop Culture Happy Hour co-host Stephen Thompson to join us. Stephen, uh, I hear you're a, a big fan of Pee Wee Herman's adventure, Big Adventure. For those who don't know the character, though, tell us uh, a bit about him. Well, Pee Wee Herman is a character Paul Rubens created. He's a man-child with a gray suit, a red bow tie, a bicycle he loves, and a very childlike way of moving through the world. He's like an amped-up kid with a big laugh, and he's fervent and intense about everything. Exhibit Q! A scale model of the entire mall! <laughs> X marks the scene of the crime. These arrows here show the exact position of the sun and the hour of the crime. Jupiter was aligned with Pluto! Paul Rubens uh, created Pee-wee in 1977 when he was in a comedy troupe called The Groundlings. Uh, Pee-wee had a stage show in L.A., and then in 1985, they made that movie, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which we just heard a clip from. That was directed by Tim Burton, and when it came out, I was a 13-year-old nerd who just absolutely ate it up. So you and I are a year apart, uh, which is why I get why you liked Pee-wee, but who was supposed <laughs> to be his target audience? Well, I mean, I, I think part of the Pee-wee magic is that he could impart lessons for, for little kids, but the prevailing mood has really always been loud and subversive and weird. I'm, I'm 51, and, and Pee-wee's Big Adventure and the Pee-wee's Playhouse Christmas special still get played in my house, uh, and my kids love it. I just uh, re-watched the 1988 Christmas special last night, and just the sheer queerness of it really jumps out. You've got Grace Jones and Katie Lang and Little Richard, and if you were a weird kid or a queer kid or a weird queer kid, you were seeing <laughs> so much weirdness and queerness on a G-rated kids show, and you felt seen. Yeah, definitely. Paul Rubens' career, though, was derailed. Uh, 1991, arrested for indecent exposure at an adult theater. Did that somehow maybe affect or change your appreciation for his work? 
Well, I think it, it made him a, a pop cultural punchline at first, and it definitely hurt his career, but I think it also, in the long run, humanized him in a way. You could make the argument that it enhanced his outsider appeal and made people feel like they had to fight for him a little bit, but I'm sure it also pained him because he had taken such care to make Pee Wee a role model for kids. He was a heavy smoker, and he had a strict policy that he could never be photographed smoking because he didn't want kids to see that. So I'm sure that arrest weighed heavily on him. Overall, Stephen, I mean, how would you sum up the legacy of Paul Rubens and the legacy of Pee Wee Herman? Well, in many ways, he felt to me like an embodiment of childhood, the way it can be magical and wonderful and playful and great, but it's also childhood is confusing and transgressive and weird. He He did a beautiful job capturing the way kids can be sweet and innocent, but also obnoxious and, and full of themselves. He had... He had this whole cocktail of childlike qualities and he poured it with such love and care. You know, I, as I've kind of acknowledged, I was a weird kid. My kids were weird kids when they were little <laughs> and we're all just so grateful for him. Yeah, all the weird kids everywhere are grateful for him. Yeah. Stephen Thompson is a co-host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Stephen, thanks. Thank you, A. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll talk with a migrant family making the dangerous journey from Pakistan to Europe. And a look ahead at the supermoon we'll see in the sky later this month. It's 8.50. The writer Ann Patchett is known for tackling the complexity of family. Her new work deals with a long-ago romance a mother has not shared with her daughters. A secret is something that you are pointedly not telling someone, but something that's private is just yours. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, Ann Patchett, on her latest novel, on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. President Biden says the U.S. Space Command will stay in Colorado despite a decision by the Trump administration to move it to Alabama. At least three countries neighboring Niger are promising to support the military group that overthrew the democratically elected government last week. And the ACLU was filing a lawsuit in Oklahoma to stop the nation's first religious charter school from opening. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bionova Scientific, GMP Manufacturing Services for Biologics. Bionovascientific.com, where concept becomes cure. Mid-70s and sunny today, upper 50s and clear skies tonight, upper 70s and sunny tomorrow, low 80s and mostly sunny on Thursday. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. This week, we're listening to a variety of perspectives on forces at work at the U.S. southern border. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by the Glassdoor app, where professionals share advice and talk about work and life anonymously. Conversations are happening within companies and in thousands of communities on the new Glassdoor app. And by Grammarly, offering Grammarly business to help companies large and small communicate better and move faster with enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence. Learn more at Grammarly.com business. 
I'm David Brancaccio. First, a popular investment strategy is to hold stock in the companies that make up the S&P 500. On this 1st of August, we can now tell you that S&P index went up 3% in July, the fifth straight month of gains. The bet that the worst inflation is behind us and quarterly corporate profit reports are part of this. Here's Marketplace's Nova Safo. High interest rates often mean lower stock prices. Not this year. The S&P 500 index is up 20% year-to-date amid increasing optimism that the U.S. may avoid a recession. Inflation is down, the job market is resilient, and second-quarter corporate results are beating forecasts at a higher-than-average rate. But those betting on a soft landing, as in no recession, are betting. That's because core inflation, which shows whether price increases are entrenched, remains above 4%. Federal Reserve policymakers have promised to keep interest rates high until the inflation battle is convincingly won. And that means sustained pressure on the economy for now. I'm Nova Safa for Marketplace. This morning, S&P futures are down four-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ futures are down six-tenths of a percent. Later today, we'll get the June numbers on construction spending, which are expected to be strong. You may be thinking houses or apartment construction, but the big drivers these days are construction of non-residential, especially factories, given the money that the government is spending on bringing microchip production back to the U.S. and electric vehicle and battery production. Here's Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman. Investment in U.S. manufacturing is being pumped up by billions in new government spending, loans, and tax incentives, says Joe Brusuelas at consulting firm RSM. Public policy to manufacture semiconductor chips, rebuilding American infrastructure, and environmental incentives are combining to stimulate a true manufacturing construction boom. Year over year, construction of manufacturing facilities is up more than 75%. The rest of non-residential construction, including offices, schools, hospitals, transit systems, is up less than 20%. The Louisville area is getting new electric vehicle factories that'll employ thousands, says Michael Gritton at Kentuckiana Works. It's raising skill levels, and we as a region are hoping that we also get a lot of the spinoff effects from suppliers meaning more building of distribution centers and warehouses and community college classrooms to train new workers. I'm Mitchell Hartman for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. And by Bitwarden, a password manager for businesses designed to securely store, share, and manage credentials for employees. Learn more at bitwarden.com. This week, the Marketplace Morning Team here is looking at multiple forces, especially economic forces, shaping migration. We're calling our series Barriers to Entry, the cost of crossing the southern border. Today, how social media has transformed the illegal business of transporting people seeking better lives. Marketplace's Elizabeth Troval reports on how a popular direct messaging app has greased the wheels for the multi-billion dollar human smuggling business. I first met Pedro in a northern Colombian migrant camp where he was guiding Haitians, Cubans, and Venezuelans through the forbidding forested hills of the Darien Gap towards the Panamanian border at $100 a person. 
Hello. Two years later, we catch up over a WhatsApp call. I'm using the pseudonym Pedro to protect his identity because he himself has come to the U.S. and has a pending deportation case. He says when it comes to migration, WhatsApp is the platform to make it happen. It's encrypted, free, anonymous messaging and works even as you cross borders, no international phone plan necessary. Before his trips to the Panamanian border, Pedro would connect with soon-to-arrive migrants on WhatsApp. He'd have motorcycles or horse-drawn carts ready to get them to camp and let them know costs ahead of time. Most of the thousands of dollars collected each day from migrants ultimately went to the Clan del Golfo, a powerful drug trafficking and paramilitary group. Pedro's WhatsApp number would get passed from migrant to migrant, then on Pedro's own journey to the U.S. He coordinated with a coyote in Mexico who sent him names and meetup points on WhatsApp. TikTok and Facebook have also been used in smuggling, but more as a way to advertise services, says Nilda Garcia with Texas A&M International University. She sees coyotes offering trips on Facebook groups. A lot of people responding, asking for their services, asking for more information. Guadalupe Correa Cabrera with George Mason University says Facebook and TikTok is where misinformation spreads, especially during immigration policy changes. And that could push a migrant to reach out to a smuggler. I will contact someone who can provide me a more clandestine form to enter the United States or a faster form to do it. They may turn to friends or family for a recommendation. And once they have a number... WhatsApp is the way to connect the smuggler with the client. The platform gives the smuggler anonymity, reduces costs, and has standardized their customer communication. I'm Elizabeth Troval for Marketplace. Tomorrow we talk to a Homeland Security investigator who warns that drug cartels and human traffickers are using social media to recruit Americans to use their cars on dangerous cross-border missions. And today I talk to the World Bank about macroeconomic forces in Central and South America pushing migration north, barriers to entry, the cost of crossing the southern border. Our pieces are being posted for streaming at Marketplace.org if you miss them on the air. I'm David Brancaccio with our Morning Report. APM, American Public Media. MBTA General Manager Phil Ang will be on Radio Boston today talking about plans to improve service on the T. Take a listen at 11 and 3 on WBUR. Lots of sun and mid-70s today. Skies stay clear tonight and it dips into the 50s. Tomorrow, a bit warmer in the upper 70s and sunny. Thursday will be warmer still in the low 80s under mostly sunny skies. Right now, it's 69 degrees in Boston and the BBC is coming up next. I'm executive editor for news, Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.